We're turning this morning for our consideration in God's Word to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I want to thank Sharon for playing this morning. It's uh, one thing that you realize very quickly when you are involved in a pulpit supplying ministry that you cannot always assume there's someone to play the music. And that is the the biggest challenge that I face when I, whenever I have to fill pulpit is the, the challenge of uh, trying to lead singing if there's no music. So I, I'm very thankful when I see there's someone that can play because it delivers me from this, this, uh, this challenge. And Dr. Allison uh, made mention to us many times that the preliminaries is always the problem. He struggles, he always, he always struggles with the preliminaries, whether it's singing or the announcements. And he always used to say that the Lord does not promise in his word grace, is get, grace to be given for the making of announcements. Grace is given for preaching, but no grace is given for making the announcements. So he always did not, that was the, the, the part of the service he always struggled with the most was, was the preliminaries. But uh, thankful that there was a musician and that we could sing the praises of the Lord together this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, I'll just say before we actually read this section that one of the, one of the, the things that I always uh, have to face when I fill pulpit is I always, simply by, by default, I always come to a church where there's no minister. And that can, obviously it goes without saying, but that uh, means that there's always something in common in all the places that I attend uh, to fill the pulpit. And the reason why I'm there is because there's no preacher. Sometimes, very rare, I've actually filled the pulpit for someone who needed a, a vacation so that they have a, a pastor, but uh, the reason why I'm here this morning is because you don't have a minister. And so there is a, a message that I preach the first time that I attend a church that's in such a situation as the means to encourage the hearts of God's people uh, to continue to pray that the Lord will raise up uh, the right man for the position of pastor. This is a section of God's Word that years ago, just in my own daily Bible reading, I read, and it hit me uh, in, a, in an unusual way uh, what the passage is saying and how the pastor, as we'll get to later as we consider the message, is something that's promised to God's people. It's not uh, something that is uh, to give God's people consternation or worry or grief about whether the Lord is going to raise up a pastor to shepherd his people. If I understand this passage correctly, uh, the pastor-teacher is something that is promised to the people of the Lord. And so I want to consider this section this morning. So we'll read from this passage and then just briefly ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read uh, from verse 7 down to verse 16. We're breaking into the chapter. Paul has been mentioning about the, the church being in, a, in the 
the, the, the illustration that he gives is that it's a body. In verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called and one hope of your calling. In verse 7, we read, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far, far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16. Let's all seek the Lord for his help as we now consider his word. Father, we come now to the all-important time of the service, the time of the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, we are thankful that we can read the book of Acts, and we can read the Old Testament Scriptures, and see that preaching has been ordained by Thee uh, to bring sinners to Christ and edify the people of God. And Lord, we consider a passage this morning that deals with the, it deals with the many things But the one thing we can say for sure is that this ordained means of ministering grace has not changed. And it will not change until the Lord returns. And so, Father, help us in this divinely appointed means of grace. And, Father, we pray that Thou will give us help to exalt Christ and to glory in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago... I was reading through this section and decided to check if Spurgeon had preached any messages on this section of Scripture. And he did. He actually dealt with this whole entire section, even a broader section than what we're going to consider this morning, beginning at the, at the very beginning of the chapter and then going uh, pretty much toward the end of the chapter, he preached one message on that entire section. And his points, he had four points in his message, and he outlined the, the message in this way. It had to do with the ascension of Christ. And his points were, first, the fact of the ascension. Second, the triumph of the ascension. Uh, third, the gifts of the ascension. And then, fourth, the bearing of our Lord's ascension upon sinners. 
Now, while we may deal with a few of these other points that he's mentioning uh, here uh, as we go through the section, really I want to focus on the third of his points that he made, which is the gifts of the ascension. Or as I have entitled this message, the gifts that Christ gives to his church. The gifts that Christ gives to his church. Now the immediate context, I I mentioned it a few moments ago, uh, Paul is uh, giving an exhortation to the Ephesians to uh, continue to function as a body. That there would be continued unity uh, among the church. If you don't have disunity in your church now, thank the Lord for it. Because either you have had times in the past where you've had disunity, or at some point you, you, may, you may be dealing with this very problem of, of disunity within the church. For years a church can continue to function in unity and fellowship and then some issue arises, something arises where there's disagreement or there's contention. And before you know it, you wonder how you got from such unity and such encouragement to a place where there's disunity. And Paul understands that. You have a body of those that are sinners. And there will be times where there is disunity. And so Paul was exhorting the Ephesians to keep the unity of the Spirit in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then, as I said, he gives the illustration of a body and shows how that the church is to function as a body. He then goes on at the beginning of the section that we're going to consider and acknowledges, just like in the body you have many parts that all serve a purpose, God's people have been given gifts by the Spirit of God, that are to be used for the edifying of the body. You think of different body parts serve different functions, and it's all being used by the body for the betterment of the whole. And so Paul mentions in verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace. It's the contrast to disunity. Disunity is a dividing of the body. Paul is saying not only are we to be in unity, but the Lord has given us gifts. Every one of us has been given gifts. It's It's one of the associations that we have with Christ. Christ doesn't simply just save us in order to deliver us from the wrath to come, but He saves us in order for us to be ministering and to be serving the Lord within the context of the body. And so Paul says... Not only are you a body, but as a member of the body, you all have been given grace to function to the betterment of the whole. You may think, well, I I don't sing well, I definitely can't preach, but as sure as I'm standing here this morning, from this section of God's Word, I can say that the Lord has blessed you with some means that you can then edify the body. It may not be the same gifts that other people have. I was told that this, this pulpit was made by one of your members. A gift given to edify the body. He may not be able to preach. He may not be able to teach. He may not be able to evangelize the streets. He's, whatever his gifts may be. But he used his gifts to accomplish something to the edifying of the body. And so, regardless of how strange you may think the gift has been given by the Lord, use it to the edification 
of the body. But it's not just this general theme of the Lord giving gifts to the edifying of the body that Paul mentions. He then goes on to connect the fact that gifts are given to the church. He connects that giving of gifts to the work of Christ. It it isn't just that the Lord gives gifts in his church in, in order to bless God's people. But Paul here ties in the giving of these gifts to the church, to the work of Christ. If Christ's work is accepted by the Father, and we know it is, if Christ rose from the dead and ascended on high, and that's where he is now, at the Father's right hand, if his work has been accepted, Paul then ties the giving of these gifts or the encouragement of the body, he ties it into the work of Christ. So that we, we can say that the Lord is going to continue to save sinners, but He's also going to continue to save sinners, and one of the accomplishments that He's going to do is bring them into the body, not just save them, but He's going to bring them into the body in order to edify the body. And that's, a, that's an aspect of the work of Christ that we often overlook, is that Christ has one of, the, one of the goals, if you will, or one of the, the desires that Christ has in the salvation of sinners isn't just to deliver them from hell and to set them up as trophies of grace, but one of the purposes of redemption is to bring sinners into the body to edify the body of Christ. And that, that's what's mentioned here in the section that we read a few moments ago. So I want to consider these gifts that Christ gives. It isn't just when someone walks through the door that has a specific gift that can, that can edify the body. It isn't just that the Lord brings that person in. He has equipped that person with that ability, with that talent, with that, that gift in order for the betterment of the whole. And specifically, as it applies to your congregation, as we'll see in a few moments, one of the gifts that he gives is the gift of the pastor, the pastor teacher. So I want to consider the gifts that Christ gives to his church. First of all, the gifts that Christ gives to his people are by virtue of his victory over sin, death, and the devil. Verse 8 tells us, Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now you may be aware, if you have a marginal uh, a center reference Bible, you, you may see a note that quotes this section from Psalm 68. Well, it's actually Psalm 68, verses 17 and 18. But uh, one thing that's interesting about this quotation is it's not an exact quotation. Paul changes something in the quotation. Turn with me, if you would, back to, to Psalm 68. This has, this has led... Uh, many people to wonder if there was a, an error in the, in the transmission of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Maybe now it, in Greek it kind of got lost and, and there was some error in the, in the transmission of the, of the passage. Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also. 
that the Lord God might dwell among them. In Psalm 68, you read, Thou hast received gifts for men. In Ephesians chapter 4, we are, we are told, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, which is it? Did Christ receive gifts for men? Or did he give gifts to men? That's why some, some people have, have said, well, this is an error, right? You say there's no, there's no errors in the scriptures. This must be an error or the, the scribe must have just did it in a, in a hasty fashion and, and got close but, but missed the, the whole point. Well, I don't think that's the case. And I think the answer is that it's both. It's both. That Christ not only received gifts for men, but he gave gifts unto men. Well, you say, well, we, we strive for, for precision in our translation of the scripture. How can you say it's both? What is it? Well, it is both. And the Spirit of God intends for it to be both. In Acts chapter 2, you find the same exact uh, understanding that not only did Christ receive gifts, but he gave gifts. It's the day of Pentecost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see this. That Peter's preaching, and he, he in, a, in a brief fashion, deals with uh, the history of Israel. Some of, the, uh, some of the men, David, he's mentioning here, and talks about what the Lord did in these days. Everyone would have known of the works that Christ did. Uh, he says in verse 22, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. They knew what Christ did. They knew what he did. He then goes on in verse 29 and says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father... The promise of the Holy Ghost, okay, he received the gift of the Holy Ghost by the Father, connected to his finished work. He goes on to say, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So the same one who by virtue of his finished work received the gift of the Holy Ghost by the Father, in the same verse is said to then have taken that and given the Holy Ghost, on the same day, right? The same, what you are witnessing, Peter's saying, is the Lord received this gift from the Father and he now is giving it. It's, it's one event, the giving of the, of the gift and then Christ sharing that with the body. That's why I say in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4 and then the quotation from, from Psalm 68, it's both. Psalm 68 is only dealing with the one aspect of Christ receiving it from the Father by virtue of his finished work. 
And and in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is dealing with the edifying of the body. So he only emphasizes that one aspect of the same event where it benefits the body. But in Acts chapter 2, both are in the same verse. The Father blesses Christ with the Holy Ghost. Christ then takes that gift and shares it with his people. That's why the, the, the purchase of the Spirit of God is connected to the work of Christ. You read through the book of Acts and, and, and how much is mentioned in the book of the Spirit of God active in the church. It's why Christ told the apostles to wait, to tarry in Jerusalem until they were filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Whenever you see, whenever you hear the mention of the working of the Spirit, it should always be in connection with the work of Christ. This is why the, the charismatic movement is so erroneous. You can go to hear preaching in a charismatic church where they're constantly emphasizing the Spirit and hear nothing of Christ. All you hear is the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and you never hear preaching of Christ. That is not the purpose of the Spirit of God. Christ Himself told the disciples... That when he comes, he will show you all things, for he shall glorify me. If the Spirit of God is at work, you're not going to hear much about the Spirit of God. You're going to hear much about Christ. That's the purpose of the giving of the Spirit, to exalt Christ. So how do I know if a man is filled with the power of the Holy Ghost? It's not because all he preaches on is the Holy Ghost. A man is filled with the power of the Holy Ghost if he emphasizes the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you see that here. Christ is given the Spirit, and He then gives it to the church in order to see souls saved. Yes, we need the power of the Spirit in evangelism, but also to keep the unity of the body, because that also reflects the work of Christ. And so I wanted you to see that, that you may be reading this and say, wait a minute, that's, that's, a, that's a misquote. It's not a misquote. There's two aspects to the giving of the Spirit. One is the Father gives it to Christ, Christ then gives it to the church. And, and you can't understand what he talks about later in, in these gifts, what they are. You can't understand that until you understand how Christ... But not by virtue of him being the second person of the Trinity, but by virtue of his work as the God-man, the mediator, then gives the Spirit. The Spirit is not given because Christ is God. The Spirit is given because Christ as the God-man was successful in his work as Redeemer. There, there is a difference. The Lord could give the Spirit by virtue of his deity. He's God. He could do what, what he will. But in the divine economy, the Spirit is given because Christ's work is successful. And so you and I enjoy the blessing of the Spirit of God as a gift that Christ gives by virtue of his finished work. Martin Lloyd-Jones says upon this text, The same person receives and gives. The giving presupposes the receiving, right? If Christ gives it, it presupposes he received it. It's not by virtue of him being God, but he received it. 
But granting that, says someone, what about the question of the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The answer is that the same Holy Spirit who inspired David when he wrote the psalm has inspired, has inspired the Apostle Paul when he wrote the fourth chapter of this letter to the Ephesians. And what he does in both cases is to show that all the gifts that come to the church come from and through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the one instance, he emphasizes that it's the Father who gives them to the Son, In the other, he emphasizes the son who gives them to the church and her individual members. There is no contradiction. Both statements are true. Indeed, it is precisely here that we see so clearly the lordship and the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. And he's talking there about the giving of the inspired word. It isn't a mistake. As a matter of fact, the Spirit of God and His wisdom is giving a full picture of what Christ does now that he is seated at God's right hand. After his successful work as Redeemer, Christ ascended back to heaven as a victorious conqueror. Spurgeon says the illustration which has been given, usually given, is, I think, so good that we cannot better it. When generals and kings returned from war in the old Roman ages, they were accustomed to celebrate a triumph. You young people, when we deal with the word triumph, we just, just think it's a victory, but it actually had a specific meaning in the days of the Romans, and it was, some, it was a parade. It was a celebration. And Spurgeon mentions what took place in the triumph. It says they were accustomed to celebrate a triumph. They rode in state through the streets of the capital. Trophies of their wars were carried with them. The inhabitants crowded to the windows, filled the streets, thronged the housetops, and showered down acclamations and garlands of flowers upon the conquering hero as he rode along. Without being grossly literal, we may conceive some such a scene that attended our Lord's return to the celestial seats. And then he quotes Psalm 47, verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And so there's a triumph. And there are gifts that are given to the one who is successful in his triumphant work. In the old parades, it was the general. When we come to consider the work of Christ, Christ's successful work as our Redeemer and his continued work as our Mediator has earned for him the gift given by the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. And we know Christ's work is successful. I said it was over sin, death, and the devil. The scripture is clear. Christ's work in being successful over sin, verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, Right? All three of those statements are dealing with the fact that this individual is God. You cannot be the brightness of God's glory, the express image of His person, and you cannot uphold all things by the word of your power if you're not God. Right? And so Paul, in the book of Hebrews, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. I'm not going to go into that. Maybe I'll touch on that some other time. It's one of my pet peeves that people refused to give the author of authorship of Hebrews to Paul. But uh, that's for another time. I think you can safely say Paul 
wrote the book of Hebrews. So he mentions that in verse 3, but then he goes on in his description of this individual by saying, when he had by himself purged our sins. Now you're dealing with the work of a man, the God-man. And so the, the beginning of the book of Hebrews, especially verse 3, is one of the most profound verses in all of the scriptures because such massive statements are made concerning Jesus Christ. You cannot read verse 3 of chapter 1 of Hebrews without coming away saying this individual is much more than a man. And this individual is much more than the second person of the Trinity. He's the God-man who came into the world to, a, to accomplish a specific work. And here it says, when he had by himself. I'm t- saying these, these verses are so massive, right? You could take little parts when he had by himself and just preach on the fact that only Christ has removed sin. Only through the work of Christ. Then you can focus on the word purged our sins. What does that mean? How, it, it, it deals with the manner in which the sins had been, have been removed. They had to be purged. These, these, these statements are so massive. But I want to focus on that, that last part where it says he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, you can say a lot of things about sitting down on the right hand of a king. But of all the things you can say, you can say this much. That the, the king allows it to happen. You don't just walk into the, the throne room of a king and decide to sit down on his right hand unless the king has prepared that place for you. You read both the book of Esther. You couldn't even come into the courtroom of the king unless the king extended his scepter, let alone sit at his right hand. If you tried to come before the king, that was it. You didn't even get close. Why? Well, a number of reasons, but the most obvious is you're considered a threat, right? But the only way you can actually get to be seated on his right hand is if the king has prepared that place for you and he wants you there. So when we read that he by himself purged our sins and then sat down on the right hand of God, the work's finished. Right? The Old Testament priests never had a place in the, in the Old Testament economy to sit down. The only seat that you find in the tabernacle of old was the mercy seat where God came down to dwell with his people, but the priest could never sit down. Once atonement was made, blood was sprinkled, he left. And the next year he did the same thing. The work was never done. Here is a priest who by himself purges our sins. Now he's seated at God's right hand. It's over. It's done. Anything, everything that was, that was necessary and anything that was needed in order for sinners to be redeemed has been accomplished. And the one who made the demands is so content in the work of Jesus Christ, he gives him a seat at his right hand. <clears throat> so the work's done and God the Father has accepted it. So that's why I say the gifts that he gives show that he's triumphant over sin. There's no way Christ, as the God-man, would be able to sit at God's right hand unless the work was finished and that God accepted it. So he's triumphant over sin. Then he's triumphant over death, right? He died, he rose again, and now he ever lives to make intercession for us. So of all the things we can say, we can say this much, he's triumphant over death. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We're going to consider, maybe not tonight, I may need a little bit more time to work on. I've been, I've been, I told some of you yesterday, I've been working on an aspect of justification that connects, <clears throat> connects the obedience to the law to life. And I say it's, it's an aspect of justification because in our justification, Christ's obedience and the righteousness that he merited before the Father in keeping the law is put to our account. Right? We call it the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not only... It, Christ has done two things that are necessary in order for us to enjoy life. He has to remove our guilt. Right? That's the cross work. He made an atonement. Go through the Old Testament. Atone, sins have to be atoned for. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So the Lord makes it clear. There has to be the shedding of blood to remove our transgressions. What is a transgression? You have a law that when you break it, it's sin. It's a transgression. So in order for us to enjoy life and to be with the Father for forever, everlasting life, our guilt needs to be removed. Otherwise, we're, we're ripe for hell. The Lord has every right to condemn us to hell if our guilt for the violation of his law is not removed. But that only deals with the negative, our transgressions. In order for us to enjoy life, life is promised only to those who obey. You not only can't disobey, but you have to have an active obedience. God has to look at the law and say, not only did you not break it, but you kept it. Right? And that's the aspect of justification that is so often ignored. Sinners not only need their guilt removed, but they need to have, in the sight of God, an active obedience to the law. And there is a clear connection, and like I said, we'll deal with this probably next week, because I, I need to consider a few other passages. But when you see it, and, and, and it's, it's really just jumped out at me in, in recent days. When you see it, it is all through the scriptures. Life is only given as a reward to those who keep the law. It's, it, the, the, two, the two go hand in hand. You think of the wages of sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. If death is the wage or the, the payment for sin, then you can honest you could you can you can say with all clarity and confidence from that passage that life is the reward for obedience. Even though it's not mentioned, we see it as a gift. Paul mentions that that, that the gift of God is eternal life. Well, why is it that God gives this gift? On what basis does God give the gift of eternal life? Is it the cross work of Christ? No. God does not give eternal life because Christ made an atonement. He removes your guilt. Eternal life is given because Christ kept the law for you. That's why in that same book in Romans... Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. 
for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Paul could have mentioned the cross work, and that is an aspect of the gospel, but he focuses on the, the aspect of righteousness. That is at the heart of, of the Lord giving us eternal life. And we miss it so often because we're not precise in our theology. Not only did Christ die on the cross, it wasn't enough that Christ died on the cross. If he did not have the perfect life to accompany that death, he would not be able to make an atonement for us. Not only did he die, he lived for us. And so you find, especially in the writings of the Puritans, you find them, they they talk about the life and death of Christ. Not only did Christ die for us, Christ lived for us. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. So what does that mean for us? It means that our righteousness cannot be improved upon. It doesn't matter what you think you're doing that's making God happy. Everything that God demands by virtue of the keeping of the law has already been met for you in Jesus Christ. So you and I this morning wake up And it's not very long before we sin, whether in thought, word, or deed. How, as a sinner who is saved, how can I have the confidence that the Lord is well pleased with me? Or to use a great example, how did David... Man, you talk about a great example. How could David write in the Psalms, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Man, David... If if David did what he did in our day, not only would he be removed from being the king, he would have been executed. Premeditated murder. Oh, that's like, people have no time for that, right? If, if, If you get a murder that's accomplished in a rage, you understand, right? You understand how someone who struggles with anger, goes to work, does whatever, has no thought of that he's going to commit a murder. Something happens, a life is taken. Okay, It's not acceptable, but you can understand how circumstances arise, but the worst punishment that's associated with murder is premeditated. In states that issue the death penalty, it demands the death penalty because the person thought it through, premeditated, planned it out. Oh, it's the, it's the lowest of the low. And David... David came up with a scheme that over months, right, to to murder Uriah, we would say, whew, man, not only is there not a place for him in the world or in the church, but even in the world, he needs to be executed if justice is going to be served. So how can David then say that God is well pleased with him in such a state? After he came, when, when Nathan came and said, Thou art the man. How can, David, how can David have any confidence God is happy with him? I can tell you Uriah's family wasn't happy with him. How can, how can God still be happy with David? Because he was a man after God's own heart. Because he understood the gospel. He understood imputation. And after committing such a grievous sin, which you and I are just as prone to commit, if you understand the bent of our nature, it is but for the grace of God that we don't do what David did. 
that he could acknowledge that his sin is not imputed to him. Paul mentions it in Romans 4. He gives David and, and Abraham as examples of those that were justified by faith. And David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Was he guilty? Yeah, he was guilty. Did the Lord put it to his account? No, he didn't. Because it was put on his Redeemer, who hadn't even come into the world, but was promised. David believed the gospel. At the end of that chapter, Paul says, Now it was not written for his sake alone. Talking about Abraham. It wasn't written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Of all the things you can say about Romans chapter 4, you can say this much. The same gospel, the same Christ that justified Abraham and David is, is the same is the same access that we have to the Father. We're justified by faith the same way those Old Testament saints were. Oh, victory over death. Not only victory over death, but then victory over Satan as well. Revelation 15, verse 2. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the, the number of his, na- of, his, of his name sitting or stand on the sea of glass having harps of God, and they go on to praise the Lamb because of his victory. So his victory has brought our victory. And all these ways you see Christ as the triumphant one, victorious over sin, death, and Satan. So Christ is the victor. We see, secondly, the gifts that are mentioned here are to be used to mature and build up the church. So... It isn't just that the Father gives Christ these these gifts. You know, they they could have been random gifts given to a general, but they were all intended to show the thanks and the praise of the ones giving the gifts. In regard to the gifts that God gives to Christ, the gifts are given for a specific purpose. William Milligan, in his book, The Ascension of Christ, mentions... That the gifts are given with an eye to the building up of the body, not with an eye to evangelization. I thought this was interesting. Is that we often think that the Spirit of God is given on the day of Pentecost in order to evangelize the world. And that is, that is why it was given. But what's the avenue by which the world is evangelized? It's the people of God. And so you find the emphasis in the Scriptures is placed upon the giving of the Spirit in order to build up His people to then go forth to evangelize. He says, Important as the sacred writers knew their message to the world would be, they never failed to exhibit the conviction that it was even more important to the churches. That while they had no doubt to convert unbelievers, it was still more imperatively that they should edify believers and carry them on to perfection. And that the different members of the body needed to be compacted into one, each working well in his own place, and all working together smoothly before the church could successfully accomplish her mission. Everything has relation to the church that you find that's mentioned in this passage. The the broad stroke, the way that God defines it, the way Paul defines it here, is gifts. But then you begin to see the gifts that are mentioned in this section. You may not connect 
what's mentioned here to the word gift. Because you have this, this parenthetical section, right? It begins in verse 9 and ends at the end of verse 10. It's a, it's a, it's a parenthesis. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a confusing section, those two verses. It talks about he that ascended, descended first, and, and the language is, is, is hard to understand. And I'm not going to take the time to, to get into that section. In essence, what Paul is saying is that the one who ascended to heaven first came down to accomplish the work. Okay, people have gotten some weird views into, in, in this section that Christ descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Okay? And they, they, they said that somewhere between his death and his ascension, he went into hell. Okay? That, they, they say that's the lower parts of the earth. That's nonsense. Okay? All Paul's saying here is that the one who ascended first came into the world to accomplish the work and then went back to heaven. Okay? That's, that's in essence what's being said in the parenthesis. It's, it's, it's hard reading, but that's, that's the sum of what Paul's saying. He, didn't want, he doesn't want you just to focus on the ascension without understanding that the ascension took place because he first came down into the lower parts of the earth, lower than heaven, right? Came, he came down to earth to accomplish the work. Then he went back to heaven. He's saying that Christ's ascension is based upon his successful work as our Redeemer. But if you want to understand the argument he's raising about the gifts... Leave the parenthesis out for a second. Go from verse 8 to verse 11, and you'll understand what Paul's getting at. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 11. And he gave some apostles. You see the connection? These aren't just random gifts, right? We give gifts, although we give gifts for Christmas. Our kids have no idea what they're going to get. And, you know, I remember... Growing up, we didn't have a lot of money, and I often was disappointed with the gifts. It's one time my, my dad got me a, a Wayne Gretzky jersey that I knew he got from a thrift store. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, he didn't spend much money on it. and everything. Instead of actually enjoying the jersey, which is a very nice jersey, it's an authentic uh, Wayne Gretzky jersey. Uh, I, all I focused on was the fact that I know he only paid like five bucks for it. And so I got all mad and upset. And I'm, so that was a gift, but... A lot of times on Christmas, you have no idea what you're going to get. Here, the gifts that are given are given for a specific purpose. Remember, he's talking about the edifying of the body. And he says, he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts. Well, what kind of gifts did he give? He gave some apostles. And he gave some prophets. And he gave some evangelists. And some pastors and teachers. Now, without getting into the original language, I want you to understand that last Pastors and teachers, it's one office. The pastor-teacher, the, the overseer, the, the one who is the shepherd. It's all one office. We're not Episcopalian. We're not independent. We believe that the Lord gives the pastor-teacher um, for the purpose of the edifying of, of the body. These offices, some of them have passed away, regardless of what the African Methodist Episcopal Church teaches. There are no apostles. One of, the, one of the aspects of being an apostle was you had to visibly see the risen Christ. That's why at the beginning of the book of Acts, there was only a select number of men that could qualify as apostles, which were, according to, the book of, uh, according to Luke, uh, were with us from the beginning. 
right? They saw Christ. Well, that rules out. That, that, that means that apostles were only raised up for a specific period of time, right? There's some debate as to whether the, the office of prophet is, is still in the church. Because of the other two that are mentioned here, they being evangelist and pastor teacher, I believe that the second office has passed away as well. The prophetic office. Uh, that was given uh, in times where the, it was connected with miracles as well. There, was, there were specific times in the history of the church where God raises up individuals that have been given this prophetic uh, gift. I believe it's passed away. So that leaves us with the last two, evangelists and pastor-teacher. And the difference between the two is evangelists are those that preach the gospel. The second one is those that preach the gospel but also shepherd the flock. And there is a difference. There is a difference. Uh, In the book of Acts chapter 18, in dealing with Apollos, we read, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Say, so there's an emphasis here upon his boldness and his zeal and his knowledge of Scripture. Whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard, they took him unto him and expounded... They took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Here you have a man who is obviously gifted by the Lord, mighty in the scriptures, bold preacher of the gospel, but is not a pastor. A gift to the church. The church is writing. Wherever he was going to go, they wrote letters saying, receive him, he's a blessing, he's a gift. The Lord has given given him to the, the, the church in order to edify. That's what I believe we should understand as the evangelist. Someone that preaches the gospel, but yet is not a pastor teacher. And you can see it in the early church. And you can see it in, uh, in our day today. Men who are not called to the pastorate, but yet continue to preach Christ. It's one of the things that, that I, I, I enjoy doing. I believe that the Lord has, has led me to study and has led me through the seminary in order to be an edification to the body of Christ. It wasn't very long in my studying that I realized I'm not, I'm not a pastor. I'm just not a pastor. I mean, the people that know me probably are chuckling a little bit because they would say amen. I couldn't imagine having you as my pastor. But I tell people that simply because I came to the realization that I am not called to be a shepherd, a pastor, that the Lord blesses his church with doesn't mean that you can't minister to the church and and edify the body. There are gifts given, and one of the gifts is the gift of evangelist or one who heralds forth the gospel, preaches the good news. And so the Lord raises up men for that purpose, uh, to encourage God's people through the preaching. You may look at the, the sections here, and, and, or these gifts, and say, well, we don't have apostles, we don't have prophets, 
And so all we have is pastors or evangelists and then the pastor teacher. And you may say uh, that, well, we're, we're somehow deficient, right? The early church had greater gifts. Well, there is an aspect in which greater gifts were given to the early church in order to enable them to go forth to preach the gospel. I mean, you've got to realize when, <clears throat> when Christ ascended to heaven, you and I are looking back over 2,000 years of church history, right, where we can see the Gentiles converted. And actually even beyond that, that the greatest, the greatest preachers of the gospel have been Gentiles, right? To us, it's not strange, we can look at the Puritans. We can look at just at the English-speaking world and say that for many, many years, hundreds of years, the greatest channel that the Lord used to, to preach the gospel were the English, the Puritans, right? And they're Gentiles. So, so we, we come to this and, and, and we, we think, well, you come to the early church and we think, well, of course, you know, the gospel is going to go out into the world and the Gentiles are going to... That was completely foreign, to the apostles, that the Gentiles, not only would the Gentiles be reached and be saved, but that they then became the primary instrument for evangelization, it had never been seen. And there were all kinds of problems that arose in the early church because the Gentiles were being saved. They didn't know what to do. Should they be circumcised? Should they keep the law of Moses? This is something completely new to the church. right? It's, it's something that they, they, they had to deal with. So much so that, that there were people in the church saying, no, they have to become Jews before they become Christians because there was confusion, right? And so there were gifts given to the early church that no longer exist for that reason. But Spurgeon mentions this and he says, there remain rich gifts among us still which I fear we do not sufficiently prize. Among men, God's richest gifts are men of high vocation separated for the ministry of the gospel. From our ascended Lord come all true evangelists. These are they who preach the gospel in divers places and find it the power of God unto salvation. They are founders of churches, breakers of new soil, men of a missionary spirit who build not on other men's foundations but dig out for themselves. We need many such deliverers of the good news whereas yet the message has not been heard. I scarcely know of any greater blessing to the church than the sending forth of earnest, anointed men of God, taught of the Lord to be winners of souls. I focused upon that first section where he says, there remain rich gifts among us still, which I fear we do not sufficiently prize. I know I've been guilty of devaluing the men that the Lord has raised up to preach the gospel times in my own life where maybe, maybe something happens, you, know, you don't agree with the minister on something or the way it's being run in the church, whether it's the elders or, or the minister himself, and, and you don't sufficiently prize the pastors and the evangelists. We'll get to the pastor in a second. Spurgeon says, don't look upon the fact that two of the four offices no longer exist. Rejoice in what the Lord has given. He still has given men, evangelists and pastors, and we don't even sufficiently prize those two very often in the work of the Lord. So the evangelist, but then also the pastor-teacher. What can we say about the pastor-teacher? Well, from this section, 
in its context, we can say, first of all, that having a pastor teacher is an indication of the grace of God at work, right? The Lord is obviously vested in his work when he raises up a pastor, a pastor teacher, or we'll just say a pastor, a shepherd of, of the sheep. But unto, uh, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The pastor is an indication of the grace of God at work. The pastor, secondly, is an indication that Christ is still on the throne. Isn't it? If he ascended up on high, led captivity captive, and now is seated at God's right hand, when he raises up a pastor to shepherd his sheep, it's an indication and a reminder to us that Christ is still ruling and reigning. He's still at the right hand of God. Is it not? It's an indication that Christ is still ruling. He gave gifts to men. But then the church, thirdly and lastly, should always hold the pastor-teacher. This is the last thing that we, we can see about this office. Should always hold the pastor-teacher in the highest honor as a gift given directly by Christ. Right? That's what the passage is saying. The gifts are given directly by the one who received them from the Father. And one of the gifts is the pastor. As a gift given directly by Christ for our good, for the edification of the body, and for his glory. That's why he gives pastors. He gives pastors not to evangelize, although that is an aspect of the ministry. Here we are told the reason why a pastor is given is for your good, the sheep. To edify the body. And you're gathered together here and you don't have a pastor. The prayers that you offer to the Lord that he would send a pastor aren't just vague prayers. Every church needs a pastor. Lord, give us a pastor. You can, you can pray specifically for a pastor and tie it into the work of Christ's intercession at the Father's right hand. You can pray if Christ's work was successful and you and I are here today because his, his work is successful. We're redeemed. And if the indication of that successful work is that he's at God's right hand and we're told that one of the things he gives to his church while at God's right hand is the pastor, you can pray for a pastor on the basis of the work of Christ. It's not just a vague prayer. You can pray, Lord, if you have redeemed us, and purchased us, then give us the gift that has already been given to you by the Father, which is the pastor. You see how, you see how Paul is giving direction in such situations to the people of God as to how to pray for a pastor? It isn't just, Lord, give us a pastor. Is Christ's work successful? Yes. It's promised then. It's promised. Plead the promise before the Lord that he would raise up a pastor, a man after God's own heart. In conclusion, I want to quote one last thing from Spurgeon. He says, Pray the Lord to send true pastors and true evangelists. Christ procured them by his ascension. Right? That's the basis for our prayer. Christ already procured them. By his ascension. Let us not forget this. What? Shall it be thought that the blessings of the crucifixion are worth having? 
and the blessings of the resurrection worth receiving, but the blessings of the ascension are not to be rega- are to be regarded with indifference or even with suspicion. See how he, he emphasized it's a great way of, of thinking about it. We talk about the blessings of Christ's cross work, and we talk about the blessings of the resurrection, but we don't talk about the blessings of the ascension. Are we to consider them somehow like second-rate blessings? No, they're all tied to the work of Christ. And this is the whole point of the message. We can pray specifically for a pastor, for our congregations that don't have one, and claim the work of Christ as the basis for the, the request. He says, should we consider these with, with indifference or even with suspicion? No. Let us prize the gifts which God gives by his Son. And when he sends us evangelists and pastors, let us treat them with loving respect. Honor Christ in every true minister. See not so much the man as the master in him. Trace all gospel success, right? This is the success through the minister, right? Trace all gospel uh, gospel success to the ascended Savior, right? So he gives the gift, and this man is anointed with the power of the Holy Ghost, It isn't his ministry. It's the ministry of the ascended Christ through this man, is what Spurgeon's saying. Look to Christ for more successful workers. As they come, receive them from his hands. When they come, treat them kindly as his gifts and daily pray that the Lord will send to Zion mighty champions of the faith. I think Spurgeon hit the nail on the head. That is the point of what Paul's saying here. That these gifts are guaranteed. They're as guaranteed to you as all of the other gospel promises that he will give you a pastor. Pray to that end. It doesn't matter how discouraged you may be, how, how bleak the situation may look. The Lord is well able, by virtue of his finished work, to give you a pastor after his own heart. And so I trust that the Lord will take these thoughts from this passage. It's a great section of God's word when you see how these blessings that the church enjoys are tied to the work of Christ. It it gives you confidence in the place of prayer. It's It's not me that came up with this idea that you can tie this to the work of Christ. The Holy Ghost in his word says you pray that the Lord will raise up pastors because they've been purchased by Christ. Christ has purchased them for us, for the good of the body. So I trust the Lord will take these thoughts and write them on our hearts for Jesus' sake.